Well, I want to start by asking you a question. I want to ask you, how can you be the best version of yourself? Because being the best version of ourselves is something our culture tells us to do. One of the kind of the slogans, the taglines of our culture is, be the best version of yourself. We see it in motivational posters like these. I tend to think this is the kind of thing you might see, imagine them, you might see them uh, in the toilets in kind of an independent coffee shop somewhere. Or sometimes you see them actually on book titles. If you search Amazon for how to be the best version of yourself, you will find loads and loads of books giving you lots of life advice on how you can become the best version of yourself. And similar advice to what you might find in some online articles. Articles like one on Time magazine, which says things like, just show up, don't sweat the details, and embrace failure. Or one on Teen magazine website, which tells us, let things go, it will happen when it happens, and don't compare yourselves to others. There's all this stuff around about being the best version of ourselves because we're told that being the best version of ourselves is the way we will thrive and flourish and get to enjoy our best life. And actually, you know, some of the advice in those books and those online articles isn't kind of bad stuff, but I don't think any of it is really how any one of us can truly become the best version of ourselves. They're not really the route to thriving and to flourishing. The only way we can really become the best version of ourselves actually is to become like God, to become like the God who made us to live as we are made to live. How can you become the best version of yourself? Is to become like the God who made you. And that's basically what Leviticus chapters 18 to 20 are trying to tell us. These chapters give a better answer than any of those books or those articles to how can we become the best version of ourselves. And the answer they give us is we become like God. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you'll know we're exploring this book of Leviticus, a book we so easily think of as old and odd and obscure, but we're finding it has lots to teach us and that time and time again actually points us to Jesus. And we've talked, you might remember, about a pyramid structure, which we might get the kind of picture of on the screen, the pyramid structure of this series. And so far, we've worked up the side of the pyramid, the start of Leviticus, all about how can imperfect people dwell with a perfect God. Then last week, we looked at the two goats in the middle at the very pinnacle, the top point of the pyramid, the day of atonement, when God and humans have their moment of greatest intimacy together. God and humans dwelling together. Well, today, we're starting the journey back down the pyramid, and that's all about what happens when people live with God. What kind of flows out of that experience of living with God? And you might remember the message of the Leviticus is that God wants us. Well, the message of this second half of Leviticus is God wants us to find and experience our best life by becoming like him. And that's what Leviticus 18 to 20 about. They include laws for holy living, becoming holy as God is holy, just as we have been singing it's how to become like God and become the best version of ourselves. But if we're honest, we often kind of struggle with the law in the Old Testament. And there are all kind of misunderstandings that swirl around among Christians about those laws. And so we're going to quickly talk about, well, how do we actually understand these things? What are they doing here? And then we're going to go into these chapters and find two key emphases and ask, how do they apply to us? Old Testament law is so easily misunderstood. We might think it's just kind of dry and dusty and old-fashioned, outdated. From a primitive culture, that doesn't have much to say to us. We might think, actually, it's just God having a bit of fun. He wanted to kind of see people jump through some hoops for his amusement, as it were. We might think the law is about trying to earn favor with God, to try and get some brownie points to get something good from God. 
actually all of those are total misunderstandings of what the Old Testament law is really about. And hopefully the very beginning of Leviticus 18 gives us a good insight into what's actually going on when God gives these laws. Just let's read the first five verses. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. These verses reveal two really important things we might overlook about the law. One is that all these laws in the Old Testament are part of an existing relationship. They're part of a relationship God has already made of the people. Did you notice in that short space of a few verses, three times God refers to himself as the Lord your God, or as the Lord. And you might have noticed on the screen the word Lord was written in block capitals. But what that actually is signifying is God's personal name, God's name Yahweh. He's saying, I'm Yahweh, your God. I am Yahweh. And that name is meant to evoke and kind of bring to the surface the whole story of what's happened before this. It's meant to evoke the fact that this is a God who heard the cries of his people in slavery. This is a God who had compassion and sent a leader to rescue them out of slavery and now has committed himself to them in loving relationship. When God says, I am the Lord your God, so keep my laws, he's not saying, I'm God, I'm the creator of all, I'm the ruler of all, I'm in charge, you better do what I say. He's saying, I'm the God who's loved you, who's rescued you, who's committed myself to you in relationship, and now here's the way for you to thrive in this relationship. You see how it totally changes what these laws are doing. These laws are about an existing relationship God has made. It's not about God saving them because he's already done that. He's already rescued them from the slavery they're in. It's not about them earning God's favor. They're already experiencing God's favor, not because of who they are, but because of who God is and the fact he has set their heart on them. These laws are about an existing relationship. And the second thing we see in these verses is these laws are about finding and enjoying true life or our best life. Do you spot verse 5? If a person does them he shall live by them. That can't just mean if someone follows them, he follows them. Or if he keeps these laws, they'll be his way of life. That would be a totally meaningless statement. What God is saying is actually if you keep these laws, there's true life in them. There's an experience of fullness of life to be found in obedience to God. So these aren't pointless, but also not by earning credit with God. They're about how things work best how God has designed things to be. It's living with the grain of the universe, and that's always going to be the way that things work out best, and that's best for us. God wants his people to live his way because he wants his people to enjoy fullness of life. Another thing we say about these laws is that by living by them, the people become like God. The very next chapter, chapter 19, God says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He's saying you're to live in this way because as you live this way, you're going to reflect what I'm like, what God's like. You're going to reflect my character, my holiness, my difference, my being set apart, my being perfect will be reflected in you. I think that kind of makes sense. We know that when relationships change us. It makes sense that as the people lived in relationship with God, they were going to be changed to be more like him. And it makes sense that becoming like God would be the source of true life and fullness of life because God himself is life. He is where we can find life. 
So these laws aren't what we so often think. They're actually a gracious gift of God into this wonderful relationship he's established with the people of Israel, all designed to help them find life. But then we might ask, well, what are the laws actually about? How do we become like God? How do we become the best version of ourselves? Well, across Old Testament law, there's all manner of things talked about, all sorts of areas of life. But in Leviticus 18 to 20, there are a couple of things I think really stand out as strong emphases that God puts at front and center, which we'll try and unpack just briefly. And it's worth a helpful way of thinking about this. It's worth thinking these laws are like windows into God's heart. You know, laws always reveal values. They reveal the values of the people who make them. So, for example, we have laws against murder because we value the right to life. We have laws against theft because we value the ownership of personal property. The laws you make reveal what you care about. They reveal your values and your heart. The same is true of God. As we begin to look at some of the laws of God, we learn what God cares about. We learn about God's heart. So what are the emphases in these chapters? Well, the first one, the biggest emphasis, actually, in Leviticus 18 to 20, is sex. Pretty much all of chapter 18 and all of chapter 20 is all about sex. It gets the most airtime in these chapters, all about forbidden sexual relationships. And the key point that God makes in these chapters is that he doesn't just want the people of Israel to go along with what the neighboring nations do. They should look different. They shouldn't just do things thinking, well, it's fine, everyone else does this, it's fine for me to do this. God says, no, you as my people should look different when it comes to how you think about and how you live out your sexuality. 18 verse 3, he says, You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. And he goes on to explain what that looks like in terms of sexuality. The Israelites were to reflect God by having a radically different view of sex to the whole world around them. And the situation is very much the same for us today. The nations around Israel linked sex and worship. They thought they could worship their so-called gods through sex. And so you had temple prostitutes and all kinds of things going on. And pretty much anything was acceptable sexually. There were a few taboos, but pretty much anything went because sex was this way of connecting with the divine. In our culture, sex and God or sex and worship are still linked. But in our culture, sex isn't any more used to worship a god. Sex is the god. In our culture, sex is where we're told we'll find true fulfillment in life. We're told it is the be-all and end-of-all life. It is the route to true fulfillment, the pinnacle of life, even. And if you don't think that's quite necessarily true, if you engage with the kind of stuff that is aimed at people my age and younger, you'll see that's the message we are being sent. We are being told day after day through TV, films, songs, adverts, that sex is where it's at. Sex is the be-along end, or the very pinnacle of life. That's where you find true life. That's how you become, in part, the best version of yourself. But God's version of sex is radically different. In these chapters of Leviticus, God outlaws anything, pretty much, that falls outside of a one-man, one-woman marriage. He talks about sex with different species, sex with people of the same sex, sex with close relatives, sex with someone who's already married. All of these fall outside of God's plan for sex, how things work best. Because God knows that sex isn't a God. Sex isn't the route to true fulfillment. Sex is good, and it's a good gift from God. A good gift from God to be enjoyed in the context of a one-man, one-woman marriage. But it's not a gift that's necessary for survival, or a gift that's necessary for fulfillment. 
That means that those of us like myself who aren't married and don't have sex and might well not ever get married and might well never have sex doesn't mean we're missing out on something we need. We're not missing out on the pinnacle of life. The Bible has a radically different view on sex, a radically more life-giving view. And there's so much more we could say there. We haven't got time, alas, to unpack everything the Bible says about sex. But I want to point you to a helpful resource. You may or may not know that alongside my role here at King's, I work for a charity called Living Out. And we exist to help Christians and wider society wrestle with big questions about faith and sexuality. What does God actually say and how do we actually live that out? If you head to our website, livingout.org, you will find articles and podcasts and blogs and book reviews and all manner of resources to engage with pretty much any question you might have about Christianity and sexuality. And I'd encourage you to spend some time there, get into grips of what does God actually say about sex. But the thing to notice today, the thing to notice in Leviticus is that God views sex as very important and that God wants his people to be distinctive in the way they think about and the way they conduct themselves sexually. We should live in a distinctive way. That means we should be different and seem different because of the way we think about and talk about sex. And actually for us today as Christians, follow Jesus, that is already true. If you believe what the Bible says about sex and you live it out, you will already seem very different to the world around us. And that's only become more so. I'm convinced that for my generation and the next generations, one of the biggest battles for us as Christians is will we continue to believe what the Word of God says or will we actually believe what the culture says? And following what God says about this in a culture that believes very differently can be very tough, can be quite uncomfortable, you can seem quite weird, eventually you can be quite hated. That's probably where we'll get to. We've got to remember Leviticus 18.5, the person who does these laws, he shall live by them. The reason we want to be faithful to God is because that's where true life is found. And we get to be distinctive and to present to the world around us a life-giving way of viewing sexuality and taking hold of the gift of sexuality that God has given us. So sex is one of the big emphases in this chapter. And then the second one is about justice and poverty, God's passion for justice and his care for those in poverty. And that's the middle chapter. Chapter 19 of Leviticus is particularly concerned about things like these. A few little examples. Take verse 9 of Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, the leftovers, basically. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. This law is basically saying when you harvest as a farmer, as many people in Israelite culture were, you're not to make sure you get every last bit. Actually, you're to leave the last bits. So those who have nothing, those who have nothing to eat, nothing to buy food with, can get what they need. It's a way of providing for those who don't have. It's an instruction not to hoard and not to be selfish, not only to think about our own needs and what we want, what we need, but actually to be generous to those who are in need and to be active and deliberate in generosity. And this is a law that reveals God's heart. God's heart, he cares about those who are in poverty. He wants people to be provided for, and he wants his people to have and to reflect his heart in action, to be generous and to help those who need help. Another example law from this chapter, verse 15. You should do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. This is simply saying everyone should get a fair treatment in court. 
Just because someone's poor doesn't mean they should get a lesser treatment. Just because someone's rich or powerful or well-known doesn't mean they should get a better treatment. Everyone should be treated completely equally, get a fair trial. This, again, is revealing God's heart. God cares about justice. He cares about things being done fairly, everyone being treated fairly, and he wants his people to have that heart and to reflect that heart in all of their dealings, and the example here being the law court. God passionately cares about justice, and his people care about justice. He passionately cares about those in poverty and his people doing the same. So in these chapters, God calls his people to holy living through lots of different laws, but these are two, I think, of the key emphases. Actually, he wants his people to become like him in the areas of sex and justice and care for those in poverty. You might be thinking, well, that's great, Andrew, but this is Old Testament law. This is stuff written for people living in a desert 3,000 years ago. What's the big deal for us? What's it mean for us? Well, we too, if we are followers of Jesus, if we are God's people today, are called to become like him by living his way. We're called to become the best version of ourselves by being holy as he is holy, and that gets affirmed directly and explicitly in the New Testament. One of the early followers of Jesus, the early church leaders, the Apostle Paul, uh, Apostle Peter even, says this in the first chapter of his first letter. He tells us, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He's repeating the exact same calling Leviticus. He's actually quoting explicitly from Leviticus. We are to become like God by being holy and holy living as God is holy. And actually, though, if we're followers of Jesus today, we have even more reason to do that. Do you notice Peter started by saying, obedient children. He's reminding us that we as followers of Jesus are being adopted as God's sons and God's daughters in a way the Israelites actually hadn't. He's saying, become like your father. He's saying, take on, grow in the family resemblance. Be like the father, your father in heaven. And we do that again by looking different. Notice he says, don't be conformed. That means don't be kind of pushed into the mold. Don't go along with the flow. It means we're meant to look different. He here talks about the passions of your former ignorance. He's looking inside of us. He's saying, don't be conformed to your desires, your feelings. He's saying, don't assume everything you feel is right. Don't assume everything you desire is actually going to bring you the fulfillment it says it will. Actually, he's saying, follow me, follow my ways. Don't be conformed to what you find inside is parallel to Leviticus saying, don't be like the nations around, which is actually something the New Testament also affirms. Don't just assume that how everyone is is how everything should be. Actually, there's a distinctive life-giving way for us to live. We are to be, he says, holy in all of our conduct. Every area of life should reflect the fact that we're becoming like God. And those two emphases that Leviticus 18 to 20 are just as much there in the New Testament. In the New Testament, God still very much cares about sex and wants us to think and live distinctively and differently to how the world around us does. The New Testament affirms the Old Testament that sex is a good gift from God to be enjoyed in marriages of one man and one woman, but it also affirms the fact that sex isn't everything. Sex isn't the be-all and end-all. And so the New Testament has a wonderfully high view of celibate singleness, even actually, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, saying it's better than getting married. We need to hear and remember that challenge to not just go along with what the world says. 
We need to hear him remember the challenge. So just because it feels good to us, so we think it's going to bring us fulfillment, doesn't necessarily mean it is. What does God's word actually say? God's way is always best for us, and the way we will become the best version of ourselves, and then including how we steward our sexuality. The challenge to each one of us is how are we doing in reflecting God and the way we think about sexuality and the way we steward our own sexuality? And the New Testament also reaffirms that God is passionate about justice and he cares for those who are in poverty. Just as he wanted the Israelites to reflect that in the way they lived their lives, he wants us to reflect those principles the way we, we live our lives. For most of us, that won't be about how we harvest our fields or kind of harvest our grapevines, but in the different ways that fit in our culture and our times, he wants us to reflect that same heart. For us to be like him by showing active, deliberate, generous care towards those in poverty and fighting for justice where there is injustice. How are we doing in reflecting God's passion for justice and his heart, his care for those in poverty? But the last really important thing to realize is we do all of this stuff differently. You see, Jesus changes things. With Jesus, we aren't giving a list of laws to follow, that we have to try really hard to do our best and really strive to keep them to become the best version of ourselves. Because actually, if you read the story on from Leviticus to the end of the Old Testament, the main message of the Old Testament is we can't do that. You can give laws to humans, but we cannot keep them. We are incapable on our own of being holy, of becoming like God. And that's why God sends his son. That's why Jesus comes. Through his death, his resurrection, his ascension, Jesus radically changes our positions that we become holy. Our identity now is that we are holy ones, as Paul wonderfully reminded us a couple of weeks ago. But also, Jesus empowers us, enables us to be holy, to live holy lives. No longer do we strive and try really hard, I'm going to put all my effort into this. Actually, now God is working in us. No longer do we have a list of laws on stone tablets or on parchment scrolls. The Word of God promises the law of God has been written onto our very hearts. Hearts of flesh that can be responsive to God. Hearts that have his law written on us. It doesn't mean we ignore everything the Bible says. We still gain wisdom. We still gain direction from the Word of God. But the power to do this comes from the fact that God himself has come to live inside of us. It comes from the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who helps us to become holy. We can't become holy without God working us. We can't become the best version of ourselves without God working us. That means you can't be the best version of yourself without becoming a follower of Jesus. Because when we come to follow him, that he comes to dwell in us and empowers us to live his way. Enables us to be holy as God is holy. And the band could come up at this point, please. So this morning, we're going to take a chance just to pause and to reflect on the call, the invitation that God makes to us to be holy as he is holy. We're going to take the bread and wine together, that opportunity to recommit ourselves to him, that meal of commitment to God as we remember what he has done for us, taking the bread in remembrance of his body broken for us, the wine in remembrance of his blood poured out for us. We're remembering, we're partaking in Jesus' death, we're committing afresh to him, and it's also an opportunity to ask him to help us to do this. We cannot do this on our own, but he has promised to help us. An opportunity to invite the Holy Spirit again to help us. Hopefully you've got a little bread and wine pot. If you haven't got one and you need one, stick your hand up. The stewards will have a quick scan around and be able to bring one to you. If you're not a follower of Jesus here today, we'd ask you not to take the bread and wine because this is a meal of commitment to Jesus, something we do if we have committed to him. But if it is you, don't feel uncomfortable about that. Others won't be taking it, 
But why not grab someone at the end, find out more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus? If you're a Christian here this morning, even as we've talked about these particular topics in the law, or there may be other things, the Holy Spirit may just be gently highlighting areas to your life where actually you're not living in holiness. Where actually you're not really reflecting who God is in the way you're living. And you might just want to pause before you take the bread and wine and have some moment for God to speak to you, a moment for God to challenge you. You might feel you need to repent of some things, and then you can come and take the bread and wine, receive the forgiveness of God and the empowerment of the Spirit. Should we stand? We're going to take the bread and wine. We're going to worship together. The guys will lead us in a song, a chance for us to do business with God, to take the bread and wine as we have that song. But let me pray for us before we do that. Lord God, we thank you so much for the invitation to come to you and to be holy as you are holy. We thank you that as an invitation to be the best version of ourselves and to find true life by becoming like you. And we thank you so much that through your Son, you have declared us holy and now you, by your Spirit, are living inside of us to empower us to be holy as you are holy. We pray now as we draw near to you, would you help us, would you challenge us when we need challenging, and would you equip us by your Spirit to be men and women who faithfully follow you in holiness, who thrive and flourish in life by being holy as our Father in heaven is holy. Spirit, come and move amongst us, do your work amongst us as we engage with you now, as we worship you, we pray. Amen.